Point. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host. Thank you for joining me today. This is the show where I talk to folks in Reno who are doing interesting and cool things. Today on the show, I'm talking to Mike Van Houten from downtownmakeover.com. Downtown Makeover is one of the longest-running blogs in Reno covering development, downtown's renovation, new projects, all kinds of stuff that is happening that is changing the way Reno looks and feels. Mike is the perfect person to talk to about all that's been going on in the last few months and years with these new developments as Reno is growing. We had a great conversation about so many of the projects that are happening in Reno right now, in my own neighborhood, down by Riverside, in the core of downtown. We talked about Midtown and the Reno Experience District. Really great conversation. Tons of stuff going on in Reno. I really hope that you will enjoy it. Before we head to the interview, as always, if you enjoy the show... Be sure to like, share, subscribe, link people to it, tell people about it, all that fun stuff. I'm always trying to spread the word. And now this week's guest, Mike Van Houten. Mike Van Houten, welcome to Renoites. Thank you for coming on the show today to talk about development and building stuff in Reno. You run a blog called Downtown Makeover. So the best place for us to start, I think, is to tell me a little bit about Downtown Makeover. It's one of the longest consistently running local blogs that I know of. And it's a a major source of news about development that's going on in the city. People get their news and stay informed from a variety of different sources. So what made you start the blog and what role do you think it plays in the, you know, the development information ecosystem in Reno? What, what role do you want it to play there? Well, I started the blog roughly in 2000 five-ish. And I had moved to Reno shortly before then. And I've always lived in a downtown environment. I grew up in downtown Los Angeles, and I also lived in New York City and uh, New Orleans as well. And so when I moved to Reno, I I sought out, you know, the urban area of Reno to live in. And I noticed that there wasn't really too much promotion going on or even reporting about the general downtown area and the projects that are happening there. This was long before even the Midtown Merchants Association formed and Midtown was even known as Midtown. And so there really wasn't much going on. And um, coupled with that, living in a uh, historic district, I came from L.A. where there are some pretty amazing historic districts that are so intact, it's almost creepy to drive through them. It's almost like stepping back in time. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I I got with my neighbors and we approached Jessica Sferraza, the councilwoman for my ward at the time, and we wanted to turn our neighborhood into that kind of a environment and preserve history as much as possible, but without being too militant about it. So that's why we chose the conservation district. And from there, I started my website to report on what we were doing as far as the conservation district was going, because I really wanted my fellow neighbors in the city to kind of get behind us. And also what was happening in the, the downtown area, because it was just kind of this void. It was right around the time when downtown Reno was Uh, pivoting away from being a gambling mecca and leaving kind of a void, a hole downtown that needed to be filled with something. And so it was my way of promoting downtown and promoting an urban lifestyle, which to me I feel is much more healthy way to live than, you know, commuting 20 minutes back and forth out to some of the suburban areas here. And and that was the primary reason for starting the blog is nobody was really promoting what was happening in the downtown core as far as projects coming along. Excellent. What's uh, You mentioned this briefly a little bit, but what's your, your background or your experience with this urban planning and development and how cities are built? What got you interested in the way that cities are built, especially what's going on in Reno? You mentioned you're from bigger cities, so you like that urban environment. Is there anything else that's kind of gone into where you've learned and wanted to apply that to the city that you live in? Um, More on the web design side, actually. I've been a web designer. It's not what I currently do now, but I ran a web design company for close to 20 years. And I wanted to kind of give back to the community. People like the RSCBA were really focused on promoting hotels and not so much an actual lifestyle of downtown Reno. So I don't really have much experience with urban planning. I'm definitely not an 
urban planner or even a, an engineer, <laughs> but I, I know I love that lifestyle. And uh, it was something that Reno was kind of uh, missing. And it was just starting to happen as I started my blog. We started getting some really cool venues downtown. I really just kind of wanted to give back to the community by promoting our downtown to other people. And because I'm a web designer and I'm really good at search engine optimization, I knew that if I created a website that focused on downtown Reno, I could get it to the top of the search engines above the things that the casinos were doing, which were not being very inclusive of the rest of the downtown area. When they promote downtown, they only promote what's going on inside their their venues, their casinos, the shows that they're doing and things like that. They weren't really interested in reaching out and promoting or covering or even talking about the rest of uh, downtown. So when anybody Googled downtown Reno, I went in with the goal of my site coming up high in those listings. So if somebody was curious about uh, moving here, they would find my site and see a different perspective of Reno other than just being a shuttered casino core. And it worked. I got people emailing me. There are dozens and dozens of people that have contacted me throughout the years who were more interested in what was going on downtown. And, and because of my site, ended up moving downtown. And so I kind of feel I did accomplish my goal. And now that other venues or other entities have caught on and are formed, I kind of just do it as a hobby or supporting them by like the uh, Downtown Reno Partnership, for example. There's a lot of debate right now about how Reno is growing. And it's really easy to oversimplify into this idea of a, a pro-development camp that will be accused of just wanting to build without worrying about the impacts like traffic and parking. And then there's this other side that might be referred to as like the NIMBYs, uh, although I think that's kind of an unfair label, that oppose any new dense infill project. And there's a lot of pushback against a lot of this development. And I think both of those labels are really unfair. I don't think that there is a pro-development side that doesn't care about the impacts. And I don't think that the people who are opposed to development in their neighborhoods are necessarily NIMBYs. So what's been your experience with that dynamic between these kind of two opposing sides? And what do you think we're missing when we view it in that binary way rather than looking at it on a project by project or case by case basis and, and listening to the other side? Well, I think the growth of the urban core of Reno has been very organic. You know, you have the EDON. EDON is the organization that is responsible for luring new businesses here. And so they were doing their job and they were luring a lot of uh, new companies here, particularly from California. And those people wanted a certain kind of a lifestyle that could only come from Reno maturing and growing because we really only had two choices. We could either have a dead downtown with uh, you know 20 plus shuttered casinos, which is I think the rough estimate of how many ended up closing once gaming became a thing in California. And we kind of lost that uniqueness about Reno. Or we could do something about it and create a neighborhood and create an urban core like a lot of other cities were doing. And there are a lot of people who have lived here their entire lives who weren't ready for that kind of a change. You know, they wanted the small Reno. Growth to them means more traffic, more headaches, more crime, things like that. But in the converse area, if you have a healthy downtown core, you're actually going to have less crime than you would if you had a bunch of shuttered casino buildings downtown. And so it is an interesting dynamic that I've had to deal with. I have you know, people who don't like my website or, or what I stand for. And they just feel like, you know, oh, here's another Californian that's moved here that wants to change Reno into California. And I can see where people could easily draw that conclusion, you know, browsing my website. But on the flip side, what else are you going to do with a dead downtown that basically was a bunch of shuttered casinos. When it, it's a it's a unique problem when you have the Sundowner and all these other casinos downtown that closed. What are you going to do with you know a 15, 16 story building if it's not going to be a casino? So we were kind of lucky in the sense that we had some very forward thinking developers early on that took 
like the Golden Phoenix and turned it into the Montage and took the Comstock and turned it into, you know, Riverwalk Tower. And it really did truly change downtown. I think you just kind of have to cater to both and you have to understand, you put yourself in the shoes of Reno natives and understand why they don't want the city to grow and maybe actually address some of those um, concerns, such as maybe not taking 20 years to redo a freeway interchange like the I-80 Spaghetti Bowl. So if you can put yourself in each of those group's shoes, it can be pretty easy to accommodate everybody, I think. And there's going to be some grumbling along the way, but really, we didn't really have much of a choice. You know, it, it we either going to have a completely dead, shuttered downtown or or we could do something with it and, you know, take our Truckee River and make it into a an accessible park where people could actually access the river and, and tube down it instead of it being a cement corridor like it used to be and take the casinos that closed and turn them into residential instead of just leaving them closed or attempting to reopen them. And so we were kind of forced to reinvent ourselves, and not everybody liked that, but we really didn't have a choice. I don't think our economy right now would be as diverse as it is if we didn't make some of those changes because companies like Tesla and, um, and Apple uh, and Google were looking at what was happening to Reno. And I don't think they would have had as much interest in this area had we not had the synergy of us kind of reinventing ourselves, which took the work of there's PR agencies like Abby Agency that helped um, with that. And there's people like me who just ran individual blogs that presented a different side of Reno that I think helped create a more diverse economy. And we're not so much like Vegas, where we are solely focused on, on tourism. And it actually helped our tourism industry. I know the way that it looks now, our downtown looks now is much more appealing to tourists south of, you know, second or third street than it used to. Yeah, I think it's interesting, this combination of factors that go into how Reno grows. And some of them are, like you said, inevitable. Reno is going to grow whether people like it or not. People are moving here. A lot of that is financial reasons. People are fleeing California because it is very expensive in California and Nevada has no state income tax. So you're going to have a lot of people coming to Reno. And the question Mm -hmm. is, how do we adjust to accommodate that? And businesses too. And, And businesses as well. Yeah. I think that for Reno to be growing in the way that it is, we need to attract businesses and a variety and not just obviously the casino industry was not sustainable forever for Reno. We Mm -hmm. had to, to pivot and make some changes there. Mm -hmm. And to be fair to the casino industry, the the ones that we have left now downtown, they do really well. They're not struggling. Silver Legacy, El Dorado and Circus Circus. They're, they're doing very well. Their numbers are very good. Maybe not so much this past year because of COVID, but even prior to that, their rooms would regularly sell out on the weekends, even when it wasn't a special event. So we still have, you know, tourists coming here and we just have to ask ourselves, did we want like a dead downtown that they can enjoy, which would kill our tourism industry as as we made this pivot away from being almost solely gaming downtown? Or do we want to create a vibrant community downtown that both tourists and residents would enjoy hanging out in? Yeah, as someone who lives near downtown, I definitely appreciate that there are more options outside of the casinos, both for me as a local and for people who are staying in these downtown casinos to have something to do when they step out the door so they're not trapped inside the you know casino ecosystem. One of the things that people are really concerned about is rent. So rents are always rising in Reno, especially in recent years. And the vast majority of this new housing is is market rate housing. So housing has traditionally been pretty much at the mercy of these market forces. We haven't mandated a lot of affordable housing or we don't have rent control. And I tend to believe that any new housing supply is good at whatever rent it is. And there's a economic theories behind this about how people move around and stuff. But generally, more supply means lower price and that helps control the rents. But besides just building more, so obviously that is one way to help, but besides just more and more units, have you seen any other efforts made or any good ideas for controlling or managing the rental prices in Reno? 
Well, from what I understand, it's very difficult because at the state level, at least I think until recently, we were known as what it's called a Dillon's Rule state, where cities and municipalities in Nevada can't create laws that would go against laws that are already in place at the state level. So that's one reason why rent control or inclusionary zoning haven't been implemented in Reno, to my knowledge, from what I've been told by city council members, is that they can't. And I think that part of that law was modified a few years ago. I'm not quite sure. But that's one of the reasons why we don't do things like that. I'm a big fan of inclusionary zoning. And that's where a developer is forced to make a certain percentage of their project affordable. Now, when the city council can, they try to put items like that into a development agreement. You know, for example, Jacobs Entertainment, they want to have a developer agreement now for West 4th Street with the city. And a a draft of that was recently presented. And that's an opportunity for the city to say, okay, well, if you want this development agreement, you have to develop a certain percentage of affordable units to get that agreement. That, that I think in those areas, the city actually has more leeway than just passing an ordinance that says, you know, any new developments in this area have to have inclusionary zoning. It's one thing I really liked about downtown Los Angeles. Their inclusionary zoning law made it so that all of the new projects, because they went through kind of a renaissance too in downtown LA, uh, including building a seven block long civic park. They made every project have a certain amount of, I can't remember the exact percentage, I think it was 10% or 15% of affordable units. So the people who actually work downtown could live there. Because as you know, Los Angeles has a car problem. <laughs> so they they don't have really good mass transit down in Los Angeles that makes it easy to commute from one community to another. So unless you're already living in the downtown area, And if they didn't have that inclusionary zoning, living in the downtown area would be extremely expensive. And it is extremely expensive to live in downtown LA, but they'd have a certain number of affordable units. I think it should be more. Having tools like that, I think, would really help our city council. I don't know enough about rent control to know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I know that... uh, it's worked well in some cities and it hasn't worked that great in other cities. I have friends that make a regular income in San Francisco who can afford to live there because of rent control. They've lived in the same place for you know 20 years renting it and they're able to actually afford it because their rent only goes up a fraction of what it would go up if that wasn't in place. Mm-hmm. So I think those tools would help Reno to an extent. I'm probably more of a fan of inclusionary zoning than rent control. Developers, of course, don't like that because it takes profit away from them if they have to make a certain number of their units affordable. And also maybe looking at different methods of construction, because right now, everything, the the raw costs of construction, such as wood, steel, even labor is really, really expensive. And that's why you You really can't build affordable housing right now without some kind of government grant to back you up. I mean, the perfect example is the property that's next to the automobile museum. I think it's like 5.5 acres. There's a a vacant lot right there. They were using as, as a staging ground for several other projects, but it just went under contract for $14 million. And you have to think, okay, five acres for $14 million. There's no way even just buying for the the cost of the land alone to build affordable housing there, unless they get some kind of a supplement from the federal government or a grant from the federal government. Every affordable housing project that you have seen in Reno, like the, the one down at Steamboat and the one in Northwest Reno, used government grants in order to complete it. So that's another really big problem is the cost of raw goods right now, the cost of construction. There is several people who submitted permits that are not going to purposefully not going to build until maybe this fall, just in the hopes that the construction costs go down a little bit because it's it's really insane right now. I honestly don't know how 
Reno Experience District is doing what they're doing <laughs> because it's just, it's so expensive to build right now, mm-hmm. especially large buildings like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk to you about some of these recent developments, just kind of, you know, case by case. So starting with the Reno Experience District, we're recording this on Saturday, June 5th, and I think they're doing kind of a opening event kind of thing and have their park open and they're trying to promote the place. There's some of the residential spaces open now. The idea, I think my understanding of the red is that it's supposed to be kind of like the South end point of Midtown, right? They're trying to put in a lot of population, residential population right there that will take advantage of Midtown and, and help those businesses as well. How do you see red working for that purpose? Do you think it is a good addition to that neighborhood? Is it close to downtown enough to make that a effective corridor? Just give us some background on what the red is and and what you think of it. Um, It's a great project. I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I still think it's kind of crazy that they're doing this when construction costs are so high, um, which is one reason that their unit offerings are so high. The first building that they finished, I think it's called Emory. It's the one that people are actually moving into right now. It costs $60 million to complete. Just that one building costs $60 million to complete, uh, not including the five other residential buildings and the hotel that they're building. You know, I, I think that people balk at their high rent prices, but at the same time, they've already leased their first round that they've released to the public. So there are people that want to live there. I think it will be amazing for Midtown because you're, you're talking about 1,400 units that are going to be built there that are all within walking distance of Midtown. And there's really no other place to build a project like that in Midtown. I guess you could say it's full. You got some really good infill projects like the 1R project that recently finished on Arroyo Street that has 70 units, but that was one of the largest projects in Midtown to complete since I've been you know, living here. So other than some infill projects that will get units here and there, you didn't really have room to build something massive like this. So I'm really excited it's happening. I honestly thought that that project was going to remain vaporware for years. I I was really uh, skeptical that it was even going to get off the ground because it was so large, you know. Me reporting on this site, I've seen so many large projects come and go and, and fail or not even reach the planning process, such as the Tessera District downtown. The, the Ballpark District was supposed to be this amazing multi-block development um, that went along with the Reno Aces ballpark, and they only got as far as actually building the ballpark. There was a, a hotel that was built across the street from it, a Marriott Hotel too, but that wasn't technically those developers that built that. I'm really impressed that they're building you know, five residential buildings at once, plus a hotel, and I think it'll do a, a really good job. An amazing, it'll be an amazing benefit for Midtown in, in terms of foot traffic to go up and down Virginia Street. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I know that there is a concern about the the rental prices on these units. And people say no one can afford to live in all of this new development. But I don't imagine they're going to have vacancy, right? Like these units that are being built are being filled as fast as they can be built, right? And, and they will adjust their prices as the market dictates. You know, the Montage was a great example of this. Um, we had this amazing luxury condo project built downtown, converted from the Flamingo and, and Golden Phoenix hotels. And when they built it, they intended those units to sell at some very high prices, you know, um, $400,000 plus. But then the bank that the Montage was using for their financing completely collapsed in the the big crash of 09 when so many banks went under because of, you know, bunk mortgages. When that project was snatched up by another bank, I forget who it was, there was there were some serious issues with it. The buyers could only pay with cash. There was no financing for a while. And so those units that were $400,000 dropped down to like $120,000, $130,000. And anybody who bought in that building at that time totally scored because now they're back up in the 200s and 300s again. So, you know, if we suddenly get a glut of units available in Reno and it forces developers to lower their rents, 
that place will get rented. Reno Experience District will get rented out one way or another, you know, even if they have to eventually half the asking prices on those rents, you know, it won't be good for the developer. They'll, they'll completely lose their asses on that, but it will fill the building out. And so I think that will be rented regardless. Um, they're not going to keep that project empty. They're not going to ask, you know, $2,200 for a one bedroom if the market doesn't support that. And so they'll, if they have to, they'll lower their prices. And, and eventually, just like the projects downtown, it'll get filled in uh, with people. And it'll be a really good thing for Midtown to have that many people you know, living within that area. And also good for the Reno public market across the street that's finishing up. You know, I talked with the owner of Porta Subs the other day because it's an independently owned Porta Subs that opened there at the Reno Public Market. And she's so excited to have, you know, 2,000 new people live right across the street from her. Yeah. Uh, so it'll also support those businesses and that project as well. Excellent. So I want to talk about a couple projects that are closer to where I live because. I, I care about my own neighborhood and I want to know what it's going to look like in coming years. So there's this development up on the corner of fifth and Keystone or right by the freeway. Yes. That was supposed to be, I think there was going to be a cracker barrel restaurant there. And now I don't know if that has fallen through, but they're kind of starting this project back up again. Mm-hmm. And from what I've heard, it's going to have, I, there's a Starbucks and there's an in and out and there's a Chipotle. So it's a lot of these kind of chains, which I'm not super excited about. Sure. But uh, I do like the idea of Keystone. I live at kind of the bottom of Keystone of Keystone becoming a potentially growing neighborhood with a lot of new development and restaurants and those kind of things. So what's happening on Keystone as kind of the western edge of downtown development there? And what do you see happening in in coming years? Uh, I think that's a great development. I don't know. It will be interesting to see how it will transform the neighborhood around it or if it will. It, It might just be a supportive development for anybody within walking or driving distance who wants an In-N-Out burger, who doesn't want to drive all the way to South Reno to get one, they're ecstatic that, you know, one is being built. And even though they are chain restaurants, they still do employ local people. So that part is really great. It's an exciting development. I, I think I'm more excited about the dense residential portion of the project than the actual retail portion of the project. And I think the dense residential that they're planning, I want to say 300 or so units. I think that's a second phase. My brain's a little foggy on that project, but I think it's a second phase that they're doing for it. They're going to build out all of the, the retail first. But, you know, that's exciting. I, I, they consider that the downtown core. The city of Reno and the downtown Reno partnership both consider that area within the boundary of downtown. So that really is a downtown project, and it's going to add... And, you know, a bunch of dense residential to downtown, you know, where it should be. There's a lot of businesses in that area that will get a boost from that project, including the uh, the Save Mart grocery store and the other smaller businesses that are across the street on uh, Keystone and 5th and Keystone and 4th. Excellent. Yeah. And that also ties in close to the, the Jacobs Neon Line project, right? So Jacobs has bought up all these motels and torn a lot of it down. And there's a lot of controversy around what is going to go into that space, how long it has been sitting empty. That's a whole nother episode in itself. But I do think that having this path from the freeway at Keystone exit as a new kind of entrance into downtown rather than just coming down Virginia Street is part of the the goal of Jacobs, right? Do you see that as a, a likely thing to happen that now 4th or 5th Street coming from the Keystone side will be a major entryway into downtown with a lot of development along the way? I'm kind of 50-50 on the Jacobs project. I think what they're doing is good overall as far as the Sands remodel. They quietly just opened the uh, West Tower, I want to say, with two completely remodeled rooms, and they look really amazing. I have uh, photos of it on the Facebook page for Downtown Makeover. So that part of the project is great. The part I maybe disagree with a little bit is their plan to farm out the vacant lots that they have to other developers. You know, the motels that they demolished, 
it really depends on who you ask. If you ask like city council members or people who actually toured them or, or witnessed them, they were in really, really awful condition. There was, you know, mold, exposed electrical wires, just not a place you would want to live, you know, even if you didn't really have a lot of money. Nobody really deserves to live in, in conditions like that. You know, there's then there's the other group that says, well, you, you tore down all of this affordable housing, but a lot of people don't realize that Jacobs as a developer helped those people, the ones who wanted to be helped, move into other locations, even help them with their rent and other items. You know, in that way, it's actually a pretty cool story. And, and then you got the history buffs who are really upset that older buildings were really demolished. But I, I really question if all of those could be saved. I know some of them could be saved and renovated into kind of hip uh, projects like their Renovo Flats where they're remodeled and everything that's wrong with them is, is fixed and they they get a little bit of a facelift as well. But uh, I'm 50, 50 on that project. I kind of feel like, you know, he told the city council that's a 20 year project. So, you know, I, I might be 70 by the time, <laughs> you know, fourth street is all the way filled out. And so I wish it was a little bit more aggressive of a timeline. I wish that there were developers who were stepping up to the plate to, um, develop some of these vacant lots, but we'll see what happens with that. But if it's developed out as Jacob says it's going to be developed out, the Keystone project will be an amazing complement to it. And there's another development just down the street from me that's smaller scale and also kind of controversial, and it's this Riverside project right next to the hub. The controversy around it is that it is in a historic district. So the Pounding Historic District has guidelines about how big buildings should be and the, the style of the architecture, all those kind of things that I think are relatively new. I don't know the history of the creation of this district or when these rules went in place, but my understanding is that the developer doesn't actually have to adhere to most of these guidelines. There's like yeah. a grace period or something. So there's flexibility in what they're technically allowed to do. Uh, which might conflict with what they should or should not do. There's a lot of controversy. People say that it should be smaller. People are concerned about the with the width of the building, that now it is taking over the Washington Street abandonment that was originally intended for parking. I tend to not want to be on the side of cars in general. Whenever someone says there's less parking, I say, that sounds great. That'll motivate the city to put in better public transit, or that will encourage people to find ways other than having a car and get a bike or walk or I, I like carless mm -hmm. infrastructure and being this close to downtown, I just don't feel cars necessarily need a big priority. But anyways, it's a very kind of controversial development. What is your understanding of it? And, and what do you think of it? Uh, I like the project, but it's easy for me to like because I don't live in that neighborhood. I can say that if that was being built across the street from me, I wouldn't have a problem with it because I've had uh, three-story townhouses built across the street from me, along with uh, townhouses that are in the alley by me and a shipping container home that basically effectively completely blocks the view that I had of downtown when I moved here. And I'm okay with that because I really am a strong believer that dense development should be in the core of the city. The project itself, I think is a beautiful project. I love the, uh, the finishes that they chose for it. Um, the exterior looks really great. I love how it steps back from the, the front of it that faces the river. So a very, very small percentage of the project is actually four stories tall. I think it, I can't remember, it's on my website, but I think it's like 10 or 16% of the footprint of the project is actually four stories tall. A significant amount of it is only two and three stories tall. I think the, air, the, the complaints that people had were, number one, the people who live right across the street from it on the other side of the project, the north facing side of the project, are basically going to look at a three-story wall. And I totally get that. I understand their concern with that and that it, it's a much different view than what they have you know, right now, which basically is an unobstructed view to the river. And I also understand that 
the primary concern with building across to Washington Street or, or having the building take up Washington Street is that it will block the viewscape of the people who live up on um, Washington Street from actually being able to see the, the river anymore. And their other argument was that the, the abandonment of Washington Street was for a much smaller project. And now you have a developer coming in, taking advantage of that abandonment in a completely different way. But what people need to realize, and it's important, is that street abandonments are permanent. You know, uh, when that diagonal section of First Street near the ballpark was abandoned for a project called the Waterfront Project back in the early 2000s, it was going to be a 40-story tall glass building. It was really amazing. I was so bummed it wasn't built. But when that project fell through because of the real estate crash of 2009, that abandonment stayed. And the people who acquired that property from the failed developer, the Simon, the Simon Group, the ones who own Meadowood Mall, they inherited that abandonment. So they could use that abandonment any way that they want. And the same thing is true with this project on Riverside Drive. They inherited that abandonment and they can use it any way that they want. Now, maybe that's a completely different topic and something that should be looked at about how street abandonments work and just how permanent they are. Because once a street's abandoned, that's it. And, you know, whatever the developer said they were going to do with that street abandonment. If someone comes in and buys that property, they get that street abandonment and they can, provided it meets city code and all the current uh, zoning laws and everything like that, they can do whatever they want with it. And so I, I get why people are upset, but the developer has a right to do that. Is it the best Business practice, maybe, maybe not. You know, I, I I can see why some people think it's really shady what happened there. But shady or not, that's the right that they have um, because of that street abandonment. So I like the project. You know, again, it's easy for me to say that because I don't live across the street from it. But I've experienced what happens when dense residential is built around me. And I'm okay with it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I live just down the street. I feel bad sometimes complaining or when I say that the parking isn't an issue because I have a reserved parking spot in my building. So I don't have to worry about struggling to find parking for my own home. Mm -hmm. But for folks who live a block away, it may actually affect their ability to get in and out of their own home and park in front of their own house. That's a real problem. But as I said, as a rule, generally... In neighborhoods that are close to downtown, in neighborhoods that I think could and should have density, I don't want to necessarily prioritize parking. I was just going to say, I don't think parking is actually an issue with this project either, because according to the developer, he wanted to put in Poland parking along, uh, I forget which street it was there. And the city basically told him, no, you're covered with parking. He's going to have enough parking on the first floor for all of the residents. So that's not really going to be so much the issue. I think part of the issue was taking away some of the parking for his other development right there where Beaujolais Bistro is and Dorinda's Chocolates and the Hub. Those businesses parking. But that's his project too. And I just, I can't imagine him uh, sabotaging his own project like that. And his office, Patty Egan's office, is also right there in that complex. And so I just don't think that he would, I, I don't think it's as bad as people will think it is. I, I understand the complaints against the size of the building and how it's going to block views and um, what it will do to the people living right across the street from it. But I just don't see parking as being an issue with the project. And I think some of the complaints are just generally about character of the neighborhood, that this is a small residential neighborhood with single family housing everywhere. There's a few exceptions to that. There's a couple of bigger buildings in the Pounding District, but generally it's a very neighborhoody single family housing area. Mm -hmm. And this building feels a little bit bigger and maybe out of scale to the rest of the neighborhood. But I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. I think that 
I appreciate diversity of architecture and diversity of density in these neighborhoods. And from my understanding, I'm not an urban planner. I don't Mm -hmm. know that much about these things, but a variety of architecture and a variety of uses of the space that we live in leads to more vibrant cities in general. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have just this chunk of density in pounding. It's more people, it's more activity. I think it could be a valuable addition while still it's not replacing an historic craftsman home. It's replacing a parking lot. Yeah. So I think that because there's nothing that's really being taken away from the district, all we're really doing is adding, you know, another dimension. I'm looking forward to it as well. And I know it's controversial and I'm always hesitant to take like a strong stance on these things because I know it's a little bit heated, but as someone who lives down the street from it, I you know, I'm curious and I am optimistic Mm -hmm. and I am generally fine seeing it go forward. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what it, what it is. Yeah. The city of Reno is in the process of completely overhauling their zoning code and most of the central districts downtown. And that was another point of contention with a lot of people is once those zoning codes are um, put into place and approved, a project like this wouldn't have been able to be built in the pounding district, but the developer kind of beat that, beat that change. And even when it's going to be put in place, everybody has a year to transition to either use the old code or this new code that's going to be put in place. And it affects a lot of areas. It's a really interesting topic to dive into that I could spend an entire hour on. But yeah, the city of Reno is redoing its zoning codes in most of the central areas. It's going to affect Wells Avenue area, uh, my neighborhood, uh, Midtown, uh, downtown, and um, and the Pounding District. You know, a lot of people are upset that it, it had this project been built next year, it wouldn't even be able to, to pass uh, uh, the, the building permit stage because of the new zoning that's going into place. So they just kind of feel like the developer is beating it to the punch, but that's not really how developments work. He's been working on this for quite a long time. And so no, he he didn't just, you know, create this project out of thin air just to beat that deadline (laughs) as much as people want to think. And I appreciate that there are these restrictions and zoning restrictions that are in place or going to be in place. Cause I think the idea that people have is that, this development is just a sign of things to come. And next thing you know, it's going to be big buildings everywhere and it's going to destroy the neighborhood. But that is not likely to happen when we do have these other zoning changes and things. This, again, this development in particular is kind of getting in under the wire and that upsets people. But I don't think it's necessarily the doom to the neighborhood that that some people might read it as. No, no. You know, I think it'll actually complement the neighborhood. If I was the hub in Beaujolais Bistro, I would be totally stoked that 34 new units were being built within walking distance of my businesses. You know, you could guarantee that most of those people are going to walk right over to the hub and get coffee in the morning as part of their morning routine because that's why they would want to live in that neighborhood. So I get I get both arguments of it. Yeah. Well, let's move downtown, downtown, because there's a new development right across from the ballpark that I think just got their permits or that is in the very early stages. And it's a big development, a lot of residential, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on with that? I think you just posted about it the other day, right? Yes, that is the it's called the T3 project. And it's part of the leftover project that happened that failed when the big real estate crash uh, happened. I think our ballpark was built in 09, I want to say. And that was right around that time period. And they had this grandiose idea of a, a multi-block ballpark development that was mostly retail, actually. I don't think there was any residential in the mix there initially. But, you know, that kind of failed. And then Simon Properties bought that lot along with the the one that's across the street of 2nd Street that's along the river. And they, you know, have completely different plans for it. They submitted permits for the first phase of their project. They're going to build it in two phases. They're going to start with the northern side. So the uh, side that's right across from the ballpark and right across from Harris, that's on Lake and Evans and uh, I believe Second Street and Commercial Row. And it's going to be a mid-rise, mid-rise apartment complex. I believe I want to say it was five stories tall. 
and uh, something like 368 units, about roughly 540,000 square feet of, of residential. So it's really exciting to finally see that come to fruition. I have lived in Reno long enough to remember when the Mizpah Hotel burnt down. I don't know if you were around when that happened, but it was this historic hotel, totally gorgeous, that was on the corner of uh, Lake and 2nd Street, and it burnt down. And so now that lot's you know completely vacant all the way up to the men's club. It's basically used for VIP parking, I think, right now for the ballpark. So I'm really excited to see it become something other than a, a, a big lot of asphalt. It'll have a private courtyard. It'll have a rooftop deck for the residents. I'm imagining it's probably not going to be affordable housing. Maybe it'll be market rate housing. I'm not sure. I really haven't seen any renderings yet of other than the ones that were presented to the city council because they're part of the 1,000 Homes in 120 Days program to get some of their fees deferred until they actually finish the project. But um, it's really exciting. I didn't think that this this was another project I thought was just going to be vaporware or never be developed, but it's going to be developed. They may not start construction right away uh, until the fall um, once construction costs come down a little bit, even though they did submit their permit for the project. But it's happening and it's, a, it's exciting um, to finally see that area become filled with something besides, you know, empty lots surrounding a ballpark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we talked about this before because you came and did an interview pre-podcast for my Facebook. I did some interviews with Facebook friends. And mm-hmm. the way that I kind of describe development in Reno is it feels like we have this downtown core that's been neglected for a long time mm-hmm. and we built around it. So we focused on Midtown and really developed in Midtown and all of these new businesses moved in. And there was this idea for the the ballpark district and the breweries and all of that that is has not developed as fast as I think it was originally intended to. And we have the university North and then obviously this thing's going in on Keystone and the Jacobs development on the, the West side of downtown. It feels like those are all of the pieces that need to be in place before downtown, downtown that like the entertainment core of Virginia street can really start to add more businesses, like maybe a grocery store, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, uh, more music venues, more restaurants that are not necessarily inside of the casinos. Yeah. How, how close are we to encircling downtown with enough people who live here that they will go downtown and allow businesses down there that are at the street level to, to open up and to thrive? Like, when are we going to see the abandoned souvenir shops turned into something that people who live around downtown can get to and go to and be successful. I think you're already seeing that. You know, there are quite a few spots downtown that have had restaurants close because of COVID that had new restaurants come in fairly quickly. And I think, you know, the 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 coconut restaurant that just recently opened is a great example. It was formerly a pizza parlor. I want to say Back Bay Pizza or something Bay Pizza. Before that, it was uh, Wild Garlic. And it closed and another place came in pretty quickly after it. A lot of the vacant spaces you see downtown are because of lazy property owners. If someone has the choice between a somewhat developed space where they at least have a soft shell to go build out their business in, or like a place that's going to cost millions to get up to code, they're going to choose the, the soft shell place. You know, the, the Woolworths building downtown is a great example of this. It frustrates me because that building is really pretty architecturally amazing. I love brutalist architecture, and that building is pretty brutal. <laughs> I love that kind of cold looking architecture. And it's remained empty ever since I've lived here. And part of that is because the owner of it, the same owner who owns the Wild Orchid and the Ponderosa, really hasn't done much to make it appealing for someone to, you know, move in there. Um, I don't think they've done asbestos abatement, for example, and the things that you need to do to maintain an old building like that. And they did open a bowling alley slash bar uh, in the basement level, which is great, but nothing on the street level. 
So when someone has the, the choice between that or picking a space like at Third Street Lofts, which was fully renovated, um, they're going to pick the, the space they have to do the least amount of work in. So you have a lot of lazy property owners downtown who don't want to do anything with their properties and they just magically want someone to come and lease their space, invest all the their money into getting it up to a certain level that it's supposed to be at before they can even start building out their business in it. And so a lot of the empty spaces downtown are a result of that. Now, as far as a grocery store goes, there was a grocery store study that was done, I think, in 2007 or 2008 that basically said, you know, we need a, a core population of at least seven to 10,000 people downtown before people like Trader Joe's will start even considering opening a grocery store downtown. Um, from their point of view, they see Rayleigh's that's, you know, a half mile from downtown and think, oh, anybody that's living downtown currently can just go there. But when I was talking with the downtown Reno par- partnership recently, I think we have somewhere between five and 6,000 people living in the downtown core now, which is amazing considering where we've come from 10 years ago. I think we we need a few more of these projects opening. Reno City Center is going to be a huge catalyst for that because that's 535 apartment buildings. You know, by my calculations in the downtown core, there's about 1,300 units either under construction or just now starting construction, not even including the, the conceptual ones that haven't submitted permits yet. Uh, there's about 1,300 units. So we're getting there and it may take a couple more years to a few more years to get a major grocery store downtown. But we will have some kind of options, I think, in the coming years, even if it's a smaller Trader Joe's or another boutique grocer. You know, to give to give credit where credit is due, Urban Market is an amazing miniature kind of grocery store downtown that serves a lot of downtown residents' needs because they sell packaged food from, you know, rounds bakery and roundabout catering and other local businesses they sell there. Between that and you have Great Basin Food Co-op, they're kind of serving the, the needs of the downtown people, I think, other than, you know, driving a half mile to Raley's. So it'll be a little while, I think, before we reach that threshold to where a major grocery store chain will want to want to locate downtown. But we're getting there. We're in, moving in the right direction for sure with all these new developments. Yeah, I agree with you that we're going in the right direction. I'm excited about all the development in Reno, especially as someone who lives near downtown. I think the more people that live down here, the more likely we are to have better non-automotive infrastructure. Like if a lot of people live down here and want better bike lanes, that is going to be a driver for more bike lanes. If we want better public transit, having more people who will utilize public transit will force the city to improve the public transit. So generally, I'm happy to see what is going on in Reno, especially around the downtown core, the surrounding neighborhoods. What do you want people to know about development in Reno? People who are hesitant about the development, people who are concerned about the housing prices. What's your message to folks who are unsure about Reno's future and they're, they, they don't necessarily like or they're not sure about the things they're seeing? What would you like people to know about Reno as it's growing now? I think Reno, I would say, is going to be okay. <laughs> I don't know exactly what to say to them because it's really hard to convince a native of change. You know, change. I think in general, psychologically, in any kind of of, of arena, even outside of development, is difficult to to deal with for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people just want it to kind of stay, you know, the way it is. But I see Reno moving in a, in a really positive direction. I mean, just look what we have survived so far. You know, we've survived the death of the casino industry, basically. And we were able to re, completely reinvent our downtown. And we're still in the process of, of doing that. We've survived. We were almost ground zero for one of the most, the real estate crash of 09 and, and one of the, the worst places in the nation uh, for that occurring. And we were able to pick our feet up and survive that too. So I think that 
change has to be embraced. And, you know, yes, there is going to be more traffic, but when there's more traffic, there's ways that we can deal with that. And, you know, yes, there's going to be more people, but it's all a good thing in my opinion. You know, strengthening Reno's urban core is is a good thing. A city is only as healthy as its core. And if you have a city that's dead in the middle, that no one who even lives in Reno wants to go down and partake in, that's that's never really a good thing. And and that's a, that's a recipe for you know disaster, even something as, as extreme as what happened in Detroit when they lost their industries. You know, do we want to become the next Detroit when, when the automobile industry went under there, or do we want to you know diversify our economy and keep the city healthy? from an urban standpoint. And so I would say embrace the change. And, you know, it's not like old Reno is going to die out. There's places you can go in this town if you want to experience old Reno. Everything from some of the bars that are still around in Midtown that were here before Midtown was Midtown to like the Calneva. You know, there's always going to be a portion of Reno that's going to stay Reno while the rest of it you know, expands and grows. And it's really a choice. Do you want a bunch of suburbs 25 minutes outside of Reno that cause everything from traffic problems to pollution to not not even really that much of a healthy lifestyle? I'm not a fan of, you know, suburban living where you just go pole in your garage and then you, you don't associate or hang out with your neighbors at all. That's, I guess, what my message would be is embrace the change and realize that Reno's core will always be Reno's core. And there's always places that you can go to experience that, you know, the Gold and Silver Inn, you know, the Gold Dust West. There's always local casinos, local restaurants that have been around here forever that you can go experience, you know, old Reno while embracing the changes that are happening, which are all in my opinion, changes for the, for the better. Because if we don't change, we're just going to become a stagnant city that wishes that we had the casino economy that we used to have. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most important things is that if we're not growing, as I wish it was not this way. I wish it was possible to have very slow, controlled growth that maintains all the things you like about your city But realistically, growth comes in waves, whether you like it or not, and you need to deal with it in the best way that you can. And what you what you mentioned about the the suburban versus urban way of growth is really important to me because I do not like the suburban model of building cities. I don't like the sprawl. It has huge environmental impacts. So I appreciate you bringing Mm -hmm. that up because I do think that's an important thing to consider. Reno's growing whether we like it or not. So do we want to become a sprawling city where people spend an hour to get into town from Fernley every day? Or do we want to be a city where people can live a few blocks away from their workplace and their grocery store and, you know, their, their neighborhood bar and engage with their neighbors? I'd rather see the second. Mm-hmm. And Edon did its job, the Economic Development Authority of Nevada. Um, they did their job. They brought the, the companies here. And now we need housing to house the employees for those companies to prosper. And because of our tax base, we need those companies to diversify you know, Nevada's economy because we don't have an income tax. So the only way that we generate revenue is through sales tax and property tax. So the more construction that happens, the more property tax values raise, the more money that uh, Reno and Washoe County and the state has in order to provide the essential services that you know everybody needs. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, Nevada and Reno, maybe for that matter, has always had an income problem and not a spending problem. And so the more that we can grow our state, it it lessens that income problem. Got it. So people can find you on Downtown Makeover. Is it downtownmakeover.com, right? Yep, downtownmakeover.com or uh, on facebook.com. It's facebook.com slash downtownreno. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Development's such an important topic right now. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to chat with the man who knows all about it. (laughs) Thanks. I appreciate that.
It's an honor to be here. Thank you again, listeners, for checking out the show. And special thanks to Mike for coming to talk to me about all these development projects in Reno. Tons of exciting things happening, and I am excited to see how they all turn out. If you have any guest suggestions, ideas for episodes, feedback, please be sure to shoot me an email. My email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. See you next week.